Good morning. More power, Scotty. Hey, while the ushers are receiving the offering, I've got some very special guests that I want to introduce this morning. Most of you know that almost 20 years ago now, Union Chapel took some members of our congregation, teamed them up, and actually planted them in another culture in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Central Asia, where we found hospitable, warm, receptive people there, traditionally Muslim people who had never heard the good news of hope found in Jesus Christ. And our parishioners lived there among them, learned the language, made some friends, and over the course of, of those years, began to win people to Jesus. Among the families that, that were one to Jesus in those early years was a couple called Dalet and Dina, and they had two sons. And these boys were raised under the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their home, and it made a difference in their lives. Uh, with us this morning are members of the original team that we sent to Kazakhstan those many years ago, uh, the Westbrooks, the Brett, this is Brett and Josh, and Maria, and their, uh, two of their daughters are here. They have three daughters, and, and also with them is one of the sons of that first family who made a decision to follow Jesus many years ago. And his name is Yusin. Yusin's not only a follower of Jesus, but he's also serving Jesus full-time. He works with Campus Crusade for Christ in a city in Almaty, a city in Kazakhstan called Almaty. And we are thrilled that he's in Muncie. Uh, he's in the United States conferencing with crew with Campus Crusade. And the Westbrooks have made it possible for him to be with us here today. And so we'd just like to introduce him to you and let let you hear some of his story from his perspective. So give Yusin from Kazakhstan a nice warm greeting to Union Chapel. There you go. Good morning, church. Uh, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to share uh, a little bit about myself and what God uh, have done in my life and my life, in my family life. Um, my name is Yesen, I'm 22 years old and I'm working in crew, at the crew. Uh, I grew up in Christian family and here you can see the uh, picture with my family and other first believers in my village. And let me uh, tell you about how my family uh, came to Christ. Uh, I was uh, I was born in Uzbekistan. It's a country neighbor from to Kazakhstan. And when I was three months, uh, my family moved to Kazakhstan. Uh, my father was uh, practicing Muslim. He prayed. Uh, he was prayed five times a day and uh, was at, uh, attend to mosque. Um, my mom was a typical atheistic woman, Soviet, uh, atheistic, atheistic woman. So um, my dad uh, f uh, was, truly uh, was truly seeking God's face, and um, more than 10 years ago, um, the first American missionaries came to our village, and they started sharing the gospel to all their neighbors. And my father started talk talk with them and uh, eventually 
he came to Christ. Uh, and I don't, uh, I don't know details uh, how it was, but uh, what I can tell you definitely that it was really Holy Spirit work. And also then my mom uh, became to Christianity too. Uh, yeah, uh, we had a we started a uh, meeting in our, in our home ch uh, church house every Sunday, and you can see here the first believers. Uh, we had a like uh, church, small church in our home uh, every Sunday, and also we had a um, service service for kids. Uh, here you can see the Joshua and me and also other kids uh, showing the skit. We, this uh, uh, relationship with uh, kids, uh, missionaries' kids, uh, was really helpful for me. We spent a lot of time together and enjoyed playing soccer, uh, showing like a lot of skits. Um, and it was really helpful for me. And uh, but 2004 uh, years, uh, my father had a business trip to other city, and uh, after a few months, when he uh, come came back uh, by the train, we got a phone call, and policeman said that. Uh, he, he died. Uh, he jumped from the tr train. It was really um, depressing time for us. Um, it was really weird. Uh, um, he died in weird circumstances. Um, yeah, and it was a uh, difficult, uh, depressing time for my family. For uh, me personal, my mom started uh, working uh, before she never worked because uh, my dad uh, said to my mom, "You have to sit and sit at home and just raise kids." It's kind of like our culture uh, things. My mom started working, work hard, and she moved to another city to earn some money for me and my brother. Um, after death, my father, I rejected God, and I swore to myself that God, uh, Jesus Christ, um, Allah, Muhammad, nobody is not existing for me anymore, because uh, if God really exists, why he uh, take, take out my father? I was really like... Uh, I had a really big pain in my heart. And I started hanging out with uh, bad guys. Because, of my, uh, because my uh, mom moved to another city, I, uh, we ha we, I, spent, I started spending a lot of time on the street with ba bad company. Um, I started doing bad things, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol. Uh, and one day, uh, it was... Uh, common in my village for youth uh, to commit a suicide and in my high school 
And one day I decided to commit suicide too. And when I decided, when this day came, I just prepared all things for do this. Uh, I, somebody knocked my door to my home. I opened the door and I saw the one family from South Korea. It was another missionaries from Korea. And they asked me to have some tea in my home. I, it was a really weird question. Uh, I, I was shocked, but I let him in because it's kind of our culture. If somebody will ask you uh, water or bread or something, you have to give him and let him in to your home. So during our tea time, uh, they started sharing the gospel to me. And he said that God loved me and he is waiting for me. Um, it was really touched my heart and shocked me because a few minutes ago I was going to kill myself. But uh, now like, the, the God stopped me through this family. And I started uh, praying to God in that moment just, uh, and invited Jesus to my life. And then I started grew up, my, grew up spiritually uh, with that church. Um, now uh, what we have, uh, my mom, uh, you can see it, the more new pictures. Uh, my mom working at the church, serving at the church to kids. Uh, my brother wants to be a pastor uh, and study theology. And I'm, uh, I'm working at the uh, crew. Uh, and last year, God called me to join to the full ministry and reach the people in my country, youth people, Maybe they have the same situation. And I'm really thankful for God for this church, Union Chapel Church, for your prayers, for your sending the missionaries and delegation to our village. Um, yeah, you can see the answer to your prayers right now. Thank you. Let's uh, pray for Yusin. Lord, we thank you that you placed your hand on Yusin's life and his family. We pray for his mother, Dina today for his brother. We thank you, God, that you have promised to order the steps of your righteous ones and that you've gone before Yusin and his family and that you've ordained his life. And we see all the providential ways that you have intersected his life and prepared him for what you've called him to. So we bless him today. We ask that you would continue to go before him, give him clarity of direction, uh, provide for his protection, his provision, and God, use him in the work of your kingdom. Make a name for yourself more and more in the nation of Kazakhstan. And for these things, we give you praise. It's all about you, Jesus. And so we pray them in your name. Everyone said, amen.
God bless Thank you, man. You. Well done. Great. I'm so proud of Yusin's uh, English. He's speaking English so well that he could get up and communicate his story so effectively. And I'm so proud of him for that. Obviously, that's taken a lot of work on his part. And we're just really proud of him. Isn't that great? Great story. Wow. Well, we are continuing in the, in the uh, series that we've been on now for a couple of weeks on being rich. Be rich in the things that matter the most. Uh, I, got this, uh, I got this letter in the mail this past week, dated January 2. And it's from former parishioners who were in the church for a few years and then moved to another city. And they wrote some very nice complimentary things about the influence that Union Chapel had on their life and about some of the sermons that they heard and how impactful they may have been. And then, uh, then they write, the most shocking sermon series we heard was the one on tithing. We'd never heard anything like it. We had heard of tithing, but always in Old Testament terms as something that was practiced then. We'd never heard tithing preached as a way to honor the Lord today. And we certainly had never heard that all we have is God's, and he can take it away or give us more at any time. We got the French fry story the first five times we heard it. If you've heard the French fry story, you know what that's about. That was a novel concept for us that none of our money or possessions are ours. And tithing is just giving a tiny part of our riches back to the Lord who owns it all anyway. This truth was startling and very freeing. It showed us how to view all that we have in a totally different way. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. So isn't that encouraging that someone would actually get it? And these folks were expressing appreciation. We're going to use as our text this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. This is the parable of the sower. Most of you have heard this uh, important story that Jesus shared with his disciples and others. And there is something from this text that we want to take home with us today and we want to be rich in what matters the most. So Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 and then verses 18 to 23. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll project those words on the screen for you. So please stand as you're able to hear God's word. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A, father, a fa farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they weathered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil while it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then the explanation of the parable, verse 18 and following. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means, Jesus said, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. Since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, verse 22 is of special interest today. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. You see the phrases, worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands that this is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. May God inspire us through this important story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. 
Now, I want to give you a quick review if you weren't here last week. Last week, we shared that, that there's really, really good news and there's really, really bad news. Now, if you were here last week, you'll know what that is. So what is the good news? Help me out. We're rich. Every last single one of us here in the room today, we are rich. And you push back and say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, I, I'm not rich. The reason you don't realize you're rich is you weren't here last week. <laughs> so go listen to that. Get on the podcast and listen. You can also go to globalrich.org and look up these numbers that if you make on, a, on an annual basis $33,000, you are in the upper 1% of all wage earners in the world. You're a one percenter if you make $33,000 or more. If you are $80,000 per year in your income, you are, you are ultra-rich. You are filthy rich. You're dirty, stinking, rotten rich. $80,000 a year. You are in the top one-tenth of 1% 1 of all wage earners in the world. And you have a lot. We are all rich. And even though you may not believe that, uh, let me just remind you that the reason we know we're rich is because we have rich people problems. Like, for example, some of you women could not get your hair appointment scheduled in the time that you wanted to have it scheduled this week. It was frustrating to you that you couldn't get in to see your beautician on the day that you needed to see her. Some of you ordered a sandwich this week, and you explicitly told them not to put pickles on your sandwich, and they put pickles on your sandwich. Upset your whole lunch hour. Rich people problems. Some of, some of you are upset because your cell phone doesn't work as well in your bathroom at home. And it frustrates you that you can't do business while you're doing your business. <laughs> rich people problems. So we not only have rich people problems, but because we're rich, we really have spiritual challenges as well. And that leads to the other piece of news. The good news is we're rich. The bad news is we're rich. That's really challenging news because we learned last week that when we're rich and we're all rich, it's, it's hard for us to depend on God because we have so much other resource that it makes us want to lean on those assets rather than to depend on God. And we also learned that it's, that it's a distraction, being rich, a distraction from our true priorities, that we can get all out of whack with our values and our priorities, and we can misplace our primary purpose. And a third thing we learned last week is that God has blessed us, and therefore we have a tremendous responsibility. Jesus said, to whom much is given... Much is required, and because we're all rich, there is a great expectation and a great responsibility that God has placed on us. We are blessed to be a blessing. Now, I want to build on that, and then today I want to talk about the deceitfulness of riches. That's a phrase that Jesus used in the parable of the sower. He said, when, when the, the seed is sown, it falls on good ground, but there are also thorns in the ground, and these thorns choke out the fruitfulness of God's work in your life. The word, because of deceitfulness, it's the care of the world and deceitfulness of riches. Now, have you ever taken your kids or grandkids to one of those uh, pizza shops that also have all those games that you play at the same time? So you eat real greasy pizza, and then you get up and you go to these games, and these games spit out these tickets, and if you play the game well, you get more tickets, and sometimes you get so competitive about it, you, you know, you go over and here's your six-year-old granddaughter, and she's not doing the game quite right, so you just, you know hip bumper out of the way and you take over the game because it's producing those tickets and you like to stack up the tickets. Just make a big stack of tickets and you think, man, I'm going to have so many tickets. I'm going to get something really great. It's going to make me really happy. 
And so you accumulate 783 tickets over the course of an hour and a half or something. You go up to the counter to redeem. I got 783 tickets. And I said, what, what, is, what do I win? And the little girl behind the counter gives you a little finger puppet. So you win a finger puppet. You get to play with that. But it's enticing because every time you go, you want to get more tickets. And you believe it will make you happy. And then as you get older, rather than getting little tickets at the pizza pizza shop, you actually get little pieces of paper called dollar bills. And you think that the more dollar bills you can stack up, the happier you're going to be, the more significant you're going to feel, the more secure you're going to be in life. And you actually begin to believe that. And the world actually wants you to serve money. It wants you to get so involved and so enamored and so invested in accumulating your stack of stuff that you'll get distracted from the things that really matter. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, I'll put this on the screen for you. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot, he said, you cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. That's interesting that, that Jesus said you cannot serve God and money, but he didn't say you couldn't serve God in power or you can't serve God in popularity. He didn't even say you can't serve God and the devil at the same time. What he said was, you cannot serve God and money at the same time. And I would argue that he made that statement because money is such an attractive, false God. See, money promises things to us that only God can provide. It's a, it's a great deception. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. Money promises security. Money promises happiness. Money promises the significance in life. But listen, only God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, can give you significance, can give you a sense of security, can give you the peace, and give you the hope that you need. And it's right for us to come to terms with that. We, we're sucked into the vortex of a materialistic culture that, that says we should value our stuff and the accumulation of our stuff and the quality of our stuff rather than placing our hope and confidence in God. We say, if I just had a little bit more, then my stack could buy what would make me really happy. I could buy the shoes that would match the dress, that would match the hat, that would match the bracelet that I got for 50% off. Then the outfit would be complete, and I would be happy. That's what I need. Or if I just had the latest smartphone, oh, then I'd be popular. Then I could get a date for the prom. Then I'd get married, live happily ever after. Instead, I'm going to be unemployed and miserable my whole life as a single person because I don't have what I need to be happy. And we buy into that and we believe that. If I only had a house that had two bathrooms and three bedrooms, two baths, three beds, if I could just get that or if I could just get a different car, I've got to upgrade my car. If I, if, I, if I get a car with a sunroof, oh, sunroof. That would make me happy. Then I would be fulfilled. Or maybe if I could just get someone, you know, I don't have time. I'm so busy to clean my house. My house just gets in disarray. If I had just a little bit more money, I could pay someone to come in and clean my house. That would be wonderful. Or if I could just have a little bit more money just to get my nails done. Just to get my nails professionally done. Let me just say to you ladies that you should remember when you get your nails done, you do it for other ladies, not for guys. Just so you know. Now, the reason I know that is because guys do not care, and that's a fact. <laughs> For example, I've never heard one guy say to another guy, dude, did you see the set of nails on that girl? 
Mmm, look at those nails. Wow. I wonder if they're real or fake. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the point is, we, we think if I only had this, then I'd be happy. Reality is, listen, it doesn't matter how much you have, only God can provide lasting joy. That's right. So we buy into this. If I had just a little bit more money, then I'd feel secure. I'd feel significant. I'd, I'd just be in the right place in relationship with others in the world. And then I would feel important. And, and I, would, I would sense meaning in my life. It's just not true. What happens as a result of that is we begin to love and trust money. You say, well, I don't love and trust money. Well, how about this? Let me ask you this. I would argue gently, if you've ever bought something you didn't need with money you didn't have to impress someone you didn't like, you ever done that? If you've ever compromised your integrity and cheated on an expense report or you downloaded music or a movie that you did not pay for, or you told your 16-year-old son when you got to the gate at Disney World, tell him you're 11. I'm, I know you shaved this morning, but tell him you're 11. You know, it's half price if you're under 12. What's going on there? If you've ever compromised your family, and by that, you neglected them at the level of their highest need, which was nurture and relationship with you, but you rationalized it by saying, you know, what they really need is more stuff and the best stuff and the newest stuff. And if I can just work a little bit more and provide a little bit more and build the stack a little bit higher, then my kids can have what they need and what will make them happy. You ever rationalize that? We're all challenged by these questions, aren't we? What's happening is it's a false God that's promising only what God can provide. And since we're rich and we need to all come to terms with the fact that we are we are rich. We need to learn how to be good at being rich. And this is what we learned last week when the Apostle Paul was talking to this young pastor, Timothy. And he said, look, in your pastoral ministry, you're going you're gonna to find some poor people and you're going to find some rich people. And it's not good or bad to be poor and it's not good or bad to be rich. But it is more challenging, actually, to be rich. And it's hard to be good at being rich because being rich is really bad news. It's really hard because it's a distraction and it keeps us from our priorities and, and makes us unaware of our responsibility. And so teach people who are rich to be good at being rich. And this is what he said. I want to put this on the screen for you again. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 18, command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And so we begin to see a recipe for what it takes to be good at being rich. And since we're all rich, we've got to learn what it means to be good at being rich. We don't want to be bad at being rich. We want to be good at it. We came up with a statement last week. It went like this. God has blessed me with more than I need. I'm rich. God has blessed me with more than I need. I'm rich. Let's add to it now this week. Let's add this statement. I will not trust in riches, but I will trust in him who richly provides. Now, I want to put those two statements together, put them on the screen. I want us to read them out loud. I just want you to absorb this if you can. Take it to heart. Let's read it together out loud. Ready? God has blessed me with more than I need. I'm rich. I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. See, the problem is money continues to scream at us. 
If you have more of me, you'll be happy. You'll be significant. You'll be secure. And so what we learn is that there are real challenges when we love and trust money too much. If you're following your outline, let me just begin with the first point there. And the first point is this. People who love and trust money never have enough. They never have enough. The word you need there is enough. If I ask you, are you satisfied with your income? Are you satisfied with your income? Most of you in the room, if, if you were in an unguarded moment, you'd say, well, no, not really. I wish I had a little more. If I ask you, are you satisfied? Are you content with the amount of stuff that you have? You know, all the, all the accumulation of material things. You content with that? Well, mostly, but there are a couple of things that I really want. So, you know, I wish I had a little bit more. A couple of things, anyway. Mm -hmm. If you're a person who places their love and trust in money, I can promise you, it doesn't matter how big your stack gets, you're still going to want more. Listen to what Solomon said. He put it this way in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Look at it on the screen. He said, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. How much would it take for you to be happy? The answer for most people is just a little more. Because it's never enough. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he said it this way. He said, look, if you love and trust money, then there will never be enough. Hmm. Let me just push on some of you right now. Ten years ago, ten years ago, you were relatively poor compared to what you are today. And you said to yourself, you know, one of these days I'm going to have enough money that I'm going to feel significant and secure and happy. And ten years ago, you had this much money. And now ten years later, today, you've got twice as much or more than you had ten years ago. Here's my push on you. You weren't happy then. You weren't content then. And you're still not content now. Why is that? What's that about? So if I had just, I, I know, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but really, I've got some goals, I have some targets, and, and I know once I get to that level, you know, I've kind of put that out there, I know how much I need to accumulate, acquire, then I'm going to be content then. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because you have to settle this thing. You have to settle this question at whatever level of income you are. You have to settle this question at whatever accumulated stack you have. You may have a short stack or a tall stack, but you've got to come to terms with this. You can't love and trust money. It's a dead-end street. It promises things that it cannot provide. It didn't make you happy then. It won't make you happy now. It won't make you ha happy in the future. You've got you've to settle this in your heart. Look at Proverbs 18.11. I'll put this up. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. And so the, the deceit is that if I accumulate enough money, nothing can get me. I'll be protected from everything. Well, let me just remind you of something. You can stack it up as high as a mountain. It won't keep your kids from going on drugs. You can stack up money this high, and it won't make your marriage strong. You can stack money up this high and someone you love gets a disease that threatens to destroy them and your money's not going to help you. The things that really matter in life, money has no reference to. And so we have to come to terms with that. So people who love and trust money never have enough. Now here's the second thought, and that is people who love and trust money find it increasingly difficult to give in a big way. Increasingly difficult 
Now, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there are many of you here who would love to give big, but you don't feel like you can afford it. There are people in the room today who say, you know, I'd love to be a tither. You know, I, I think I'd really, that, that would be a good thing. That would honor God and, and, and make me an obedient follower. And I, I would love to tithe, but you know, I can't. Honestly, I can't do that. I can't afford it. I've just got too much pressure financially, and so I can't possibly do that. Or I'd love to be able to help somebody I see in need. You know, this happens to Christian people all the time. You know, I wish I could give her a big tip. I could tell that would be a great blessing in her life today. Or I'd like to be able to pay her utility bill or, or his rent one month. You know, what a great blessing. But I just don't feel like I can. I just can't afford it. And what happens when you love and trust in money, it becomes difficult to give. And what's crazy is this has been proven over and over again statistically, and it's absolutely true, that the wealthier a person is, on average, the smaller percentage of their wealth that they give. If I have a little bit more money, I'd give more. No, you won't. No, you won't. Statistically, that's just not true. In fact, what we learn is that on a percentage basis, the most generous people in American culture are people at the lowest income levels. The most generous. Now, a person who makes a lot more may give more, but on a percentage basis, persons who make the lowest amount of money in America are the ones who are the most generous. I had a man in our church who gave $2,400 a year for several years in a row to the church. Over the course of a year, he gave $2,400. And you should know that I know what everyone gives. I know the amount of money that every person who contributes to Union Chapel gives. I'm one of about three people who know those numbers. And you say, well, why do you know that? And the reason I know that is because I want to be a competent leader. I want to be prudent in my leadership. Most pastors don't want to know what their parishioners give because they're afraid it might bias them in their relationship with their parishioners and they just want to treat everybody equally. And that's the biggest pile of baloney I've ever heard. Because everybody gets treated differently. Everybody's biased about some reason or another. But listen to me. I need to know who I can trust. I'm, I'm the God-ordained leader of the church. It's a big responsibility, and I need to know who I can count on. And I know if you get this part of your life right, that most of the other parts of your life are right too. And if you don't have this part of your life right, there are other issues in your life that need correction as well. I just know that. That's a fact. That's the truth. Now, you can push on that all you want. So I know what everyone gives... Uh, so, for example, when we're trying to find significant leadership positions in our church, one of the th things we use to vet people in that process is to find out how much they contribute on an annual basis to the church. And that number isn't the important thing, but the percentage of their income re relative to that number is the most important thing. So this guy was given $2,400 a year, and he had a very common job. I know he didn't make a lot of money, and I was impressed that he would give $2,400 a year, and I saw he did that for several years in a row, and he had a wife and two children that he was raising. I mean, they just lived right on the margins, you know, just hand to mouth and just making it paycheck to paycheck. And finally, one day I asked him, I said, hey, listen, you know, this is none of my business, but you could tell me, I know how much you contribute to the church. How much money do you make in a year's time? And he looked at me and smiled and said, how much do you think I make? And I said, I think you make $24,000 a year. And he said, that's right. Interesting. You know, in fact, Jesus evidently didn't care about how much in terms of the amount that people gave in an offering, but he did care about the percentage and the motivation of the heart of people giving. One day he was standing outside of the temple across the street from where they 
collected the, the offerings, and there was this big canister on the side of the temple. It was like a big horn, and it funneled down into the treasury in the bottom of the temple, and so people could just come down that side street and drop their coins into this receptacle, and it would funnel down. And the disciples were standing across the street with Jesus one day, and, and a bunch of people were coming by, dropping in coins to the offering. You know, some, some of these guys had a big entourage, you know, and they were well-appointed. And they get there, and they got a big bag of coins, and they, you know, hold it up high and dump it out and makes a big, loud noise. And people around are noticing and going, woo, there's a big hitter, you know, he's, he's important. And, and in the middle of the afternoon, there wasn't much activity and the guys were kind of dozing off, and Jesus was still watching, and a little widow woman who's all bent over and has a shawl over her head, and she walks up there and unfastens her little coin purse, and she takes out two pennies, two pennies, and drops them in there. You couldn't even hear it. You know, it just kind of tinkles down and funnels down. Two cents, big deal. Who cares? Doesn't matter at all. Two cents. Nobody notices. The disciples aren't even watching. Jesus stands up, points, says, boys, there's the biggest offering of the day right there. That's the most important offering we've seen all day. It's an interesting moment, isn't it? And they said, what are you talking about? They only, she only put two pennies in the offering. What good is that? It didn't help anything. He said, don't you understand? She gave out of her heart. She gave not because she loves and trusts in her money, because she doesn't have any income. She's a widow person in a difficult culture with, with that state of affair. He said she gave out of a trusting confidence that God will take care of her. He said that's big faith. That's the biggest offering of the day. Love that stuff. I had, we had a guy in our church years ago. He was a very simple man. He, had, he didn't graduate from high school. He had a little wife and two little babies. He was struggling in his life. He had some addiction problems. And he was just, you know, just kind of a mess, just trying to make it. And he came to our church, started coming, heard about Jesus, and we led him to Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus. And, you know, to his credit, he started going all in for Jesus. And he'd come to church every time the doors opened. He had his Bible under his arm and his little family in tow. And, they, you know, they just all kind of frayed around the edges all the time, you know, everything kind of a little dirty over here and hanging out over there. And, you know, they just just trying hard to get it right. And he, he would come in, and, and he began to grow in his faith, and you could just see his his character began to form around there and his sense of personhood. And I'd sit and counsel with him and encourage him. And you could just see that he was growing. And he was starting to make sense out of life and get, getting through the, the, the obfuscation, the fog that he was living in. And so he began to see his way. And one, one day he comes walking into church. This was in December, just before Christmas. Unannounced, walked into my office. He didn't sit down or anything. And he laid two $100 bills on my desk. He said, here, I just feel like God's asking me to give this to the Christmas offering. Now, my reaction that day was the same one you're having right now. And before I could think about it, before I thought about it, before I processed, I heard myself say, are you sure that's what God wants you to do? Because I know that boy didn't have the extra $200. He's living on a very short stack. You know, he's in and out of work and all that, and these little babies and... He doesn't have any money. And I said, are you sure that's what God wants you to do? Now, you may think I'm crazy, and maybe you don't think I can hear from God, but listen, God rebuked me in that moment. He said, what are you doing? Who do you think you are discouraging someone that I've told to give not to give? He's giving out of his heart of love and devotion and gratitude to me. He's giving, he's giving out of his need. 
He's giving not because he trusts in his, in his little short stack, but he wants to place his trust and confidence and his hope in my provision in his life and for his family. How dare you tell him not to give? <laughs> it's just like stopping the little widow woman, widow woman from putting in her two cents. Don't put those two cents in there. Your two cents don't matter. Leave that alone. Keep your two cents. You might need those two cents. <laughs> Jesus would look at you and go, what is the matter with you? Let me tell you something that happened to me in that sequence. I learned that day what it means to be generous. And I determined from that moment to this, and it's been true even up to this last December when we took our most recent Christmas offering, that I would never be outgiven by somebody with a little short stack. Because that year, that boy outgave me in the Christmas offering. And I decided that was never going to happen again. And I don't think it has. And the second thing I took away from that is this. And this is the take home for you. If you don't get anything out of this message today except this, then hear me. God will not be indebted to you. He won't be indebted to you. He won't be indebted to me. He won't be indebted to us. He won't be indebted to anybody. Let me tell you something. God will take care of his side of the question of stewardship. If you follow God, trust and love God, live with a grateful heart and open hearts and open hands, and you're generous in your life, God, listen, he will take care of you. He will provide the joy you need, the, the, the security you need, the hope you need. He will provide you with what you need. God will not be indebted to anybody. No one in history will ever stand before God and say, you didn't treat me right. You didn't treat me fair. That was unjust what happened to me. Mm -mm. No, sir. No, ma You may think you're on the short end of some kind of stick right now, but you're, you're deceived about that. Because God doesn't owe you anything. You have, you have received exactly what you have invested in the obedience of your own heart and what you know to be right to do to the degree that you have followed Jesus faithfully. God has blessed your life. Now, don't be upset that God not only blesses you according to your obedience, but then the mercy of God and the tenderness of God and the grace of God will actually abundantly supply so that most of us sit in the room and go, not only has God met my need, but gosh, he's blessed me super and abundant, flowing over, more than I can imagine, more than I deserve, beyond my comprehension, over the top. That's God's style. He won't, he won't be short in his account with you. Yeah. Well, there you go. So people say, well, I'm going to give when? I'll, I'll give when the credit card's paid off. I'll give when I get that raise that I'm looking forward to. When I finally get in that house I want and get stabilized there, then I'll be able to give when they get the kids through college. And the problem is, of course, that people don't give more when they have more. And so my challenge to you today is to give now. Give now. Give now. Let me tell you what we're going to do at Union Chapel. We've done this for 30 years. We'll continue to do it. We're going to continue to give irrationally. We're going to be part of a church that is irrational in our generosity. We're going to give and give and give and give. We are not about accumulating a stack around here. It would be nice if we had a little more reserves than we have, you know, bad weather, whatever. Uh, people get nervous when we don't have any reserves. But listen, it's not, it's not a bad thing to live placing your confident trust and hope in God's provision 
And that's the way we're going to continue to do it around here. We're going to be lavish. We're going to be generous. We're going to be open-hearted. We're going to be open-handed. And we're going to see the fruitfulness that comes as a result of being generous. We're, we are a rich church, and so we're going to act like a bunch of rich people. We're going to be generous because that's what rich people do. That's how to be good at being rich. Paul said to Timothy, this is how you instruct rich people in order to be good at being rich because I'm not going to be part of a life or an organization that sucks at being rich. We're going to be good at being rich. <laughs> wow. You know, 18 years ago, we took members of our congregation and we teamed them up and we put them in Central Asia. You, you don't know, even know where it is. Half of you don't know where Kazakhstan is. You can't pronounce it. You don't even know where it is. If you go straight through the earth and pop through the other side, you'll be close. That's where it is. It's on the other side. Now listen, taking people from Muncie, Indiana and uprooting them from their professions and their, and, their, and their culture and setting them down in the middle of Central Asia, that's irrational. That's irrational generosity. We gave our people, we gave our resources, we gave our time, we gave our expertise. So we've had teachers and doctors and, and, and nurses and, and caregivers of all sorts, special needs people, all kinds of people. Hundreds of people, over 600 people from our church and our partner churches over the years have traveled to Kazakhstan making a difference in people's lives. It's irrational generosity to do something like that. But now it's come kind of full circle, hasn't it? Because we were willing to do that and trust God with the results of that. Now we've got a testimony. Here's a young man named Yusin who stands up now. You, you understand the gospel had never been preached in Bayerjan Mumshala, ever. No one had heard the gospel there. That's where that little guy grew up, and his parents were there, and so members of our church were there, and they heard the gospel for the first time. <laughs> this is an amazing thing. It's a remarkable story. And so here he is. He's 22, and he's, he's from a culture that had never heard the gospel. The last time the gospel was preached in Central Asia was in the 4th century, and four guys went through the ancient Silk Road, and all, every one of them were martyred. That's the last time anybody ever preached the gospel in that part of the world, the fourth century. So he's growing up in a town that has no hope of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, except now, these 10 years later, he stands up in front of us and he says, Hi, my name is Yusin. I was raised in a Christian home <laughs> in Bayerjan Mumshala, Central Asia, Kazakhstan. Awesome. That's just awesome. That's just over the top. This is fantastic. We don't know who that kid is. He may be the next apostle to Central Asia. We don't know about his brother. My brother wants to study theology and be a pastor. He may be the next Timothy to Central Asia. And it wouldn't surprise me. So we're going to be good at being rich. We are not going to suck at being rich. That's just that. Well, last point. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> Listen, if you love and, and, and trust money, you may have money in the bank, but you've got no peace in your heart. Peace in your heart. Listen, don't go through life with no peace, no sense of security, no sense of significance, no sense of purpose. Don't go through life like that. Don't spend your life building your stack and have no peace. 
I said, you may have money in the bank. He said, well, technically, Pastor, I don't have any money in the bank. Yeah, but you've got a car in the garage, and you've got junk in your basement. You've got food in your pantry. The only reason you don't have money in the bank is because you consume everything you earn. How many are you glad you came today? I mean, really, it's just, it's, it just feels warm. Listen to Solomon again, Proverbs 15, 16. He said, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. The key not, word in that verse is better. Better with a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Now you, most of us don't believe this. You read that and you go, I don't believe that. Well, that's in the Bible, I guess. But I don't believe it. It's actually true, though. Better with a little and the fear of God. So better if you have a short stack and you have a lot of Jesus in your life than to have a big stack and all the trouble that that brings, all the turmoil that that affords. I heard the story of a guy who, as a profession, counsels and consults with the mega rich. He's written a couple of books on generosity, and so he spends his life consulting with people who have enormous resource to help them sort out not only the way they're going to distribute the wealth to help and be a blessing to others, but to leave a legacy. Long after they're dead, you know, their foundations will continue to bless people here and there in various ways. And so this is a huge opportunity that this kind of mega wealth provides. This consultant was asked, is it always a blessing to have great wealth or do sometimes the challenges outweigh the blessings? He said, the challenges are more challenging than you could ever imagine. You could not ever begin to imagine how difficult it is, almost impossible to get it right. He was then asked, if you could have that kind of wealth, would you want it personally? And he said, absolutely not. Not in a million years. Never, ever, ever would I want that kind of wealth. And he knows because there is an enormous burden, there's a weight that comes onto the life of a responsible person who has great wealth. And there are people in the life of our church who have proportionally a lot more than most of us. And they could tell you in, a, in an unguarded moment that there's a burden that comes with it. There's a stress that comes with it. There's a, there's a price that has to be paid with it. And I know what you're thinking. You're going, well, geez, you know, give me a shot at it. I, I promise you, I'll handle it well. <laughs> but the reason you feel that way is because you don't believe Solomon, who says better a little with Jesus than a lot and all the hassle. But he says it's better, 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 better to have a short stack. Better, it's better to have a short stack than to have a big stack. <laughs> And all the turmoil. Well, you have to have ears to hear that. Because with great wealth comes great problems. It's harder to depend on God. It distracts you from true priorities. Keeps you from your greater responsibility. Well, what we conclude then is that what we need is more of Jesus. We need more of him. He brings the intimacy we need. He brings the healing we need. He brings the focus, the power, the purpose he brings the divine into our world. We begin to flow in this river. Wherever the river glow, goes, life was found. The river of God's presence, the river of God's, God's spirit, the river of, of life that flows in us and through us is true life. It's where real life is found. So command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant 
or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but instead put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share, and then they'll take hold of the life that is truly life. Can we use the words of Jesus now? He who has an ear, let him hear what God is saying. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to be a church of rich people that are good at being rich, honoring you with what you've trusted us with. Now, friends, as you take a moment to pray, there are those of you who you've seen yourself in this message just as I see myself. Yeah, I don't have enough. It's hard to give. I may have stuff, but there's no peace. The bottom line is that we're putting our hope in the wrong place. So if you'd say, you're here today, and you say, I want with all my heart to put my hope in Jesus. I want him to be enough. Then if he blesses me with more, I'll be prepared to be a bigger blessing. Sure, we may enjoy some. We may enjoy a lot, but we're going to give a lot. We're going to be good at channeling the blessing of God into the world. So God, help us to overcome the lies that money would promise but can't provide. Instead, God, help us to put our hope in you. Now, all of you who would say that, yeah, I don't like to admit it, but I see myself in some of these things. I want to put even more of my hope in Jesus, more of my hope in him. I want to, want to be all in in my relationship with him. If that's true for you. Would you just lift your hands right now? Say, I want more of Jesus, less of, yeah, I would think everybody raised their hand on that. God, I thank you for people that are hungry for more of you, that when we seek you according to your word, we'll find you and that you're ready to reveal yourself to us in deeper ways. And I know, God, this is a painful message, perhaps very painful, because so many of us have bought into the lies. And it's so easy to believe that more tickets will bring more happiness or more security. So God, help us to overcome the lies of that which would choke out the spiritual growth of our lives. God, help us to crave more of you, to seek you first. You know, friends, as I was thinking about this message this week, I, I was thinking about my own life and years ago, and I would, I would wonder about my standing with God. Where do I stand with God? You know, what's crazy is I remember I would put my hope in myself. I'd think, hey, if I go to church like once or twice a month, maybe that's enough. Or, or if when the offering plate goes by, put a little bit of money in there just to show God, you know, I'm on his team, you know, wink, wink. Maybe that'll be enough. Or if I stop chasing girls or stop saying bad words, if I do good things and stop doing bad, then maybe that'll be enough. See, I was putting my hope in my own abilities, my own morality, my own holiness. And the reality is that's where so many people live today. And the truth is that that will never measure up before God. Let me be real honest with you. The scripture teaches us that all of us have sinned. And every single one of us, we fall short of God's standard. And no matter how hard we try, the holiest person here can't be good enough. If you put your hope in yourself, listen, yourself will not qualify. That's why God did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We could never earn it. He sent his son. Jesus, who was born without sin, perfect in every way, with the grace of God, became sin for us on the cross and died in our place and rose again so that anyone who puts their hope and their faith in Jesus would be totally forgiven. And that's why it's called the good news, because you don't earn it and you don't deserve it. It's freely given. 
There are those of you perhaps in this room today, you realize you've been putting your hope in the wrong place. And today you're gonna put your hope solely on Jesus, the Son of God, believing that He is enough. And friend, listen, when you do, He'll forgive your sins and He'll make you brand new and He'll fill you with your spirit and you will never, ever be the same. And that could actually be the very reason why you are here today. It's time to turn from yourself, turn from your sins and toward Him and let Jesus make you new. Now, if you're in the room today and that's your prayer, that's, you say, that's why I'm here. I, I can sense it. I trust him. I, I want to surrender my life wholly and completely to Jesus to save me and make me new. That's your prayer. If that's true, just lift your hand up right now. You want to, you want to go all in with Jesus. Hmm. So all over the place. Now pray after me. Pray out loud. Are you ready? Right after me out loud. Heavenly Father, I give you my life. Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord, first in every way. Holy Spirit, fill me so I can serve you, so I can know you, so you can lead me. Thank you for new life. I give you mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, now be happy about that because God has heard your prayer. Would you stand as we sing?